You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. Episode 155.1 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Uh, the point one means there's only one other person joining me, and today it is Nathan Gilmore, who is a associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Nathan, how's it going? I'm doing pretty well. Classes are canceled today because someone saw some ice that wasn't in a glass of sweet tea. Yeah, classes are canceled here today for uh, this thing called Missions Fest. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's nine degrees outside, but that's not why they canceled <laughs> classes. Right, right. Our episode today is on banned books, and I, I suppose more broadly it's on censor- censorship in general. Um. I want to begin it in a way that we haven't begun an episode in a long time, which is a personal experience. We used to begin a lot of episodes this way, but now that we're mostly talking about specific texts and given episodes, that doesn't happen so much. Um, The banning of of books in the contemporary era mostly affects children. It's mostly uh, books that are kept out of elementary school libraries and high school libraries and sometimes public libraries. Um, Nathan, did you have any particular childhood experiences with banned books or with books that were banned in other districts but not in your own? Well, one of the things about my hometown, Plainfield, Indiana, is that the public library was a cornerstone of of civic life, if you will. Uh, So one of the things that the library celebrated every year was Banned Books Week. Uh, And usually they would have a list of of books in in poster form usually. Uh, and they would, you know, feature those titles, encourage people to check them out, so on and so forth. So it's one of those things now, looking back, you know, from 30 years later, uh, I realized that, you know, like so many things in my life, uh, this was an opportunity for me as a youngster to enjoy a bit of unearned moral superiority over those bumpkins who would ban things like J.R.R. Tolkien and F. Scott Fitzgerald and other such books, uh, you know, as far as, you know, books that were actually kept away from the general public, in my experience, there really weren't a whole lot of them. Uh, one interesting bit, uh, when I was in high school, for some reason my high school library had basically some facsimile copies of some, you know, 15th and 16th century alchemy manuals. And for some reason, those weren't kept in the general collection. They were kept behind the desk, and you had to have a teacher's permission to get them. Uh, I have no idea why. I, you know, I, I guess they didn't want us, you know, flooding the market with gold after we had somehow acquired lead. Not that I'd know where to buy that. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, those were really the only experiences I can remember from my younger years with banned books. I mean, how about you? I mean, I, you know, the the stereotype is that the South is more given to banning books than the Midwest is. Although I have a hunch that's not true. How about your experience? Yeah, I I don't remember anything being banned, but then I probably wouldn't have known if there was. I I was a voracious reader of Judy Bloom, who is banned in a lot of areas. Mm -hmm. Um, And like a lot of people, I started with Freckle Juice, which is a book for small children, and then moved up to like Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing and Super Fudge. But then the next step up from there is her books for teenagers, which I read when I was, I don't know, eight or nine. And uh, learned about things that were maybe not uh, appropriate for a third grader to, to learn about. Although I don't <laughs> think I understood uh, what menses were, or like I remember in uh, and then again maybe I won't. There's a wet dream, and that's how I learned about that. Um, so maybe those books should have been banned or should have been kept away from me. Although I don't think it did me any permanent harm. I, I don't remember there ever being 
any discussion of banned books or censorship or anything else, but it may just be that they censored uh, so thoroughly that I was unaware of it and I was not a particularly worldly child. So, right, um, right. I mean, and you know, the way you just described that, I mean, you know, calls to mind something that I'm sure we'll revisit as this episode goes on is that there's no single phenomenon called banning books, right? I mean, it could be the decision of a local librarian not to put something in the general collection. It could be the decision of a school board to remove certain titles from a school library. It could be the action of, you know, the state government to forbid the sale of certain books. But, you know, at in, in any case, and I mean, this is, I, I realize, a recurring theme whenever I open my mouth, but you got to pay attention to the historical complexity of any given instance of banning books. Right. Uh, the, the the existence of Banned Books Week does make it sound like there's some sort of global conspiracy, when in fact what you're talking about is a series of very small conspiracies, I suppose. Right, right. I mean, I'd, I'd say there's a spectrum of, you know, the magnitude, but, I mean, generally speaking, when we're talking about, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien being banned, it's not going to be a statewide phenomenon and certainly not a national phenomenon. Right. Um, you know, I, as we've been talking, I, I remember some, uh, another encounter I had with banned books, which was uh, the, the Anarchist Cookbook. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Which is a book uh, much rumored in my high school, but never actually produced. <laughs> ba- basically, every outsider kid uh, on campus was was rumored to own a copy of the Anarchist Cookbook. Right, right. And I mean, if if you had never actually seen it, I'll just go ahead and confess some sins here. Uh, there's a certain amount of cred to be gained from saying, well, yeah, I could get a copy if I wanted one. So you did this? Is that what you're saying? Oh, gosh, yeah. And I've never seen the thing. <laughs> <laughs> is it a real thing? Is it something that actually exists? Or is Heck it, if I know, man. <laughs> is it the Sasquatch of, of <laughs> countercultural manuals? The, the, this is where we need Danny Anderson. I, I, I think the uh, ancient aliens actually wrote it and gave it to the uh, Egyptians. I was going to say if one of the four of us owns a copy of the Anarchist Cookbook, it probably is Danny. Oh, I would guess Grubbs because he has obscure stuff like that floating about it's weird to think of grubs making a pipe bomb though well i didn't say he'd actually make a pipe bomb it's just it just strikes me as something that grubs would have you know found in his travels and you know displayed in his office somewhere if we had a mailing address you know what would happen now is we'd get dozens (laughs) of copies of the anarchist cookbook entirely possible then we'd be under investigation by the fbi yeah, so I'll just go ahead and say to Kristen Philippic, our press liaison, please don't honor any request to send us anarchist cookbooks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, perhaps the first place books are banned in the Western tradition is Plato's Republic, where Socrates very famously tosses the poets out of his ideal city. Uh, we, we talked about this censorship before. We had an episode, I think, about two years ago on Plato's aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's recap that argument two years later, see if, see if we've changed our positions at all. What, <laughs> what exactly makes Socrates want to ban these books? Well, first of all, there are two passages in the Republic where Socrates talks about poetry in particular. In the first one, he's talking about the education of the young and specifically the young who have been selected to be trained militarily. One of the things that Socrates is very concerned about is that the books that are borderline holy books for Athenians of his day, uh, which are Homer's Iliad and Odyssey and then Hesiod's Theogony and Works and Days, tend to portray heroes and gods acting in ways that you don't want your soldiers acting. So, for instance, uh, Zeus most famously will abandon whatever battle is at hand to go and transform into some mammal and chase human girls. Uh, Achilles famously in the underworld tells Odysseus that it would be better to be a farmer, I think it is, although I might get the the, uh, occupation wrong there, among the living than to be a king among the dead. What's so bad about being a farmer, Nathan? (laughs) Well, the answer is that there's no glory to it. No one tell stories of the great farmers of old, except for John Mellencamp songs. But uh, (laughs) I had to slip that in there. Um, And so what Socrates is very concerned with is if we've got soldiers marching shoulder to shoulder into an infantry engagement and they have been raised on these stories where the worst thing that could possibly happen is dying in battle, you're not going to win very many wars that way because all of your soldiers are going to ditch. Now, That's the first argument in Republic. The second one comes towards the end of the dialogue, 
where Socrates digs into the question of, okay, what is it that makes culture good for a city? Uh, and one of the things that he says is that, you know, it deals with things that are real. So his argument there is a little bit more abstract, and it is namely that what tragedies do, and that's the word that he tends to use in that passage, is that they construct narratives, they construct stories, they construct realities that aren't real, and in fact they aren't even imitations of the real, but they're imitations of imitations of what's real. And so what people concern themselves with has nothing to do with eternal things, which ultimately is what's good for Socrates, uh, but they concern themselves with things that are even a little bit less real than what is fleeting and decaying, and therefore it's not very good for the people of a good city. Now, what's interesting about this, and I always bring this up, I realize when we talk about this, but it's important, is that this is the only place in the Republic, and I've now taught the Republic eight times, uh, it's the only place in the Republic where Socrates actually stops and says, boy, I wish someone would make a counter-argument against this. Right. So... The way that I teach it, and like I said, you know, I've taught it to eight groups of college freshmen now, is that, you know, I I usually take that day of class, uh, and this last time it was quite frustrating because only one student in the class had read for the day. <laughs> Although you have to admit it's it's unreasonable for you to expect them to read before they come to class. Yeah, I know. But what I do is I try to have them use the resources from the dialogue up to that point to make an argument in favor of poetry in platonic terms, sort of little meta-philosophy going on. Right. How many and of you, them just spontaneously invent Sidney's defensive poesy? Um, actually, what usually happens is is they come up with some variation on Aristotle's Poetics, which actually is the most historically famous response to Plato's banning of poetry. Right. <laughs> and what's interesting about that, of course, is that Aristotle never does question the basic premise that poetry is good insofar as it develops virtue in the citizens of Apollos, right? Uh, he just says, here's the way that it actually does that, Right. Right. So you you tried to jump in a couple times there. I kept cutting you off. I'm, I apologize. No, no, that's okay. Um, Sidney actually deals directly with the uh, the metaphysics of of Plato's ban on poetry, though. That's, uh-huh. that's why I was thinking Sidney. I mean, I think he does so rather unconvincingly, <laughs> but but he does at least make a good faith effort to do so. Two two other things I think are worth noting about Plato and and censorship. Hmm. Um, First of all, uh, Elizabeth Asmus, who writes an essay for the Cambridge Companion to Plato, um, talks about the, the scene you're talking about where he says, oh, man, I wish somebody would make a defense of tragedy. That defense actually comes at the end of the laws. Oh, fascinating. Okay. And see, that's a dialogue I haven't gotten to. So Right. And I... I you know, I read it years ago and didn't pay any attention to it at all. But I, I went and read it when, when she points that out, when I read her essay. Okay. And, and what happens is essentially the, the tragedians come to the, to, to the gates of the city and say, hey, let us in. We do all this stuff. And, and the philosophers, you know, Socrates is not in that one. Um, the, the philosophers reply, well, yeah, you do what we do, but you do it worse. Uh-huh. So, so it seems like Plato's censorship is based very much on this. Um, battle between philosophy and poetry with philosophy accessing those higher realms and poetry stuck in the lower realms. And I'm making hand gestures as if this were a video podcast, but uh, <laughs> you guys can imagine at least what, what higher and lower it looked like. Well, what's interesting about that, Michael, is that in the Republic itself, uh, Socrates articulates a vision of what law does that echoes what you just described, right? I mean, the law is the vehicle by which those who are not naturally desiring of eternal goodness still get to benefit from those who do desire eternal goodness because they're following the laws written by the philosophers. Right. Who he just takes it for granted will uh, construct beneficial laws. Well, but the way he defines philosopher, I think that's a, a fair avenue to take. I mean, it's, it, it's not laws written by philosophy majors, in the modern sense, uh, but it's laws written by those who actually desire goodness. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think within that framework, you could say that, you know, someone who only appears to be a philosopher who wrote laws still would pretty much stink at it. The no true Scotsman fallacy must be in play there. 
Well, yeah, yeah. Except but of course, logical know, argumentation hadn't really been invented, so right. Nor yeah. Scotland. <laughs> um, the other thing I wanted to point out is my students, when I teach those books from the Republic, and I've never taught the the dialogue as a whole, uh, teach excerpts here and there. But mm-hmm. what horrifies them, horrifies and surprises them, is the degree to which Plato's censorship is not based on truth. Like he says, the the, the first section you're talking about, where the the, the tales from Homer and Hesiod. Um are going to lead to a bad society. He says, even if that is what the gods are like, we need to keep that from the, from the citizens of our, of our Republic. So even, oh, yeah. if, even if that's true, we still need somebody to write these kind of propagandic poems that will, that will push the citizenry in a direction we want them to go. And, and that is always what my students find the most horrifying. The mm-hmm. metaphysics, I think they find bizarre, <laughs> and, and, yeah. and, and incomprehensible, but but this notion that even if it's true, we need to keep it from people. That's that is what they hate. Right, right. And and you know the the example I always give because like you, I teach at a Christian college. Is you know okay, uh, what would you think of you know someone coming along and saying okay, we're going to take Joshua out of the Old Testament because we don't want kids to grow up thinking genocide is okay. Right. Right. I mean, that, that, is, that is essentially the argument that's being made. Yeah, and then, you know, my students say, well, no, that's awful. You can't do that. I said, so you want kids growing up thinking that it's okay to massacre entire cities full of people? They're like, no. And I say, well, isn't that what God tells them to do? Because I'm a stinker. But uh, <laughs> How have you not been fired yet, Nathan? <laughs> my, my, my stunning good looks, Michael, my stunning good looks. And the other thing is the, the defense you sometimes hear of Plato, and I know you've given this defense yourself, Nathan, is that the, the, the censorship laws he's enacting are mostly for the education of young people. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, he seems to extend it pretty far throughout the society. It's not just it's not just it, it begins with children in, in terms of this entire conversation comes up because he's talking about how we should educate the future guardians of the city. Mm-hmm. But it, it seems pretty clear to me from that that book that he is uh, he, he is not interested in anybody being able to read uh, socially destructive poetry, the anarchist cookbook of the day. Right, right. And, and, you know, I I think I agree with that as long as we're talking about the second attack on poetry rather than the first. And that's why I'm always careful to distinguish between the two. And and they're made on different grounds. It's true. Yeah. So, I mean, the metaphysical reasoning is given for the universal expulsion of the poets, whereas the moral reasoning is given for the education of children. I think even in that section, I don't have the I don't have the dialogue in front of me, but I I think even in that section, there are hints he's talking about. Everybody. Oh, fascinating. All right. And I, and I will I will defer to you on that one because I also have my copy at the office right now, and I'm at home, so. A, a glimpse into Nathan Gilmore's life. <laughs> <laughs> well, skipping way, way ahead, one of the longest-lasting lists of banned books is the Vatican's, uh, oh, man, I don't speak Latin, Index Liborum Prohibitorum. Sounds good to me, man. What led to the development of that index? What sorts of books did it ban, and why did they ultimately abolish it? Well, this is one of those places where material conditions become very important, because when you're talking about Plato's writings on poetry and then later on Aristotle's responses to the same, you're talking about a culture where poetry is something that is heard publicly. Tragedies are performed at the city Dionysia. Epics are recited uh, you know, in town where people can hear them more than they can read them. And for that reason, the arguments become a little bit different when you get into the modern era, the the index. Some people want to say that the uh, Vatican was creating banned books lists in the medieval period. It's not true. It really doesn't start until the 16th century, uh, largely in the wake of the Protestant Reformation or the early generations of it anyway. And this index largely has to do, in a very concrete sense, with what books will be printed uh, at Catholic-controlled printing presses. Uh, so if you've ever seen the the term imprimatur, that's simply another Latin term for let it be printed. Uh, and that is actually an order that would be, you know, written or stamped or whatever else on a text that is approved by the local church authorities. And then, you know, if the local church authorities can't decide... It goes up a level, so on and so forth. It's the principle of subsidiarity. But 
the index uh, said that, you know, faithful Catholics, and they're especially talking about faithful Catholic writers, people who are doing scholarship, should not cite and should not incorporate into their own works a certain list of books that begins with heretical and schismatic theology, but then extends also to include things that are opposed by the intellectual fashion of the moment. And I phrase it that way because if you go back 150 years before Galileo, no one would have cared about defending geocentrism. It's really when a group of people who were educated at the University of Paris in Aristotelian philosophy come to power in the Vatican that geocentrism becomes a very big problem and heliocentrism becomes something very threatening. So there in the 17th century, the philosophies that are opposed most strongly by the folks currently con- uh, currently administering the Vatican, so to speak, uh, are the ones that end up on the list. So eventually, and by eventually, I mean really only about 50 years ago in the 1960s, um, and I think, Michael, this happened before Vatican II, but you can correct me on that if you want. I think it's want. like 1962, so right okay, before so, Vatican II. Okay, good, good, good. Uh, you know, the I believe it's in a papal encyclical, and obviously I didn't research this closely enough because it's not sticking in my memory. Uh, <laughs> I believe that, you know, some sort of official papal word, and, you know, listeners who are Catholic, I apologize. Please write in and correct my history here. Uh, basically says that, you know, there will no longer be a list of prohibited books. Uh, and, you know, the official, um, shall we say, intellectual posture of the Catholic Church becomes that engaging with dangerous ideas is going to be the strategy rather than keeping them out of the press entirely. Uh, Michael, I'm I'm all over the place here. So, what would you add? What would you correct? Do, do you have a sense of why they made that decision? Was it a pragmatic decision? Because by the '60s, it was going to be much harder to keep people away from those books. That's certainly the case. Although, I mean, from what relatively little I know of Vatican II, it seems like a new spirit of outward directedness was starting to take hold in the Catholic Church in the 1960s. Uh, that there was a and and I hate to call it this because it sounds like, you know, the, uh, it sounds more negative than it should, but a sort of movement away from the line-in-the-sand approach that I, that I think of when I think of Vatican I and something more like, you know, an, an invitation to the world to have a conversation about God rather than a declaration to the world, you come over to this side of the line or you're, you're out. Um, so it seems like, I mean, I, I, I don't deny the pragmatic end of things, uh, but I certainly would say that there is more to it than that. Yeah. And, and, and it was, a, it, like you say, it was a time when a lot of things were changing certainly, in the Catholic certainly. Church. It is, it's difficult to imagine in 2015 how seriously Catholic intellectuals took that list. I mean, it, I, it's been a while since I read them, but in Flannery O'Connor's letters, there's a section where she is genuinely puzzled as to whether she should read Sartre, who who has been banned by the Catholic, who's been put on that list. Uh-huh. Right, right. And, and it's not just Sartre. There's a lot of, like, like you said, it's, it's stuff that goes against the intellectual conventions of the times sometimes, rather than something that's outright heretical. Right, right. So, I mean, to use the most famous example that everyone likes to cite, I mean, Nicholas Copernicus spent some time on that list. Um... And you know, again, I the sense that I get is not is is not that there is some sort of eternal war between science and religion. I think that that narrative is old and tired, uh, but rather because there were Aristotelians in the Vatican who were very very dedicated to geocentrism as a philosophy. I think likewise, uh, the reason that you don't have the strong anti-Darwinist thrust in the 20th century like you had the anti-Copernican thrust in the 17th century, is precisely because Darwin, honestly, I mean, had more of an impact on the Protestant world than on the Catholic world. Right, yeah. The the Catholics accepted Darwinism, or accepted evolution anyway. Yeah. Relatively quickly. Mm Mm-hmm. And again, I I think part of that has to be because 
the splash that Darwin made was largely in English-speaking areas, which tended to be predominantly Protestant. Right. You know, what, what you're saying about intellectual fashions, I, I think, demonstrates one of the problems with, with censorship from religious authorities. Uh-huh. Because it can be difficult to determine in, at, at the moment what is, what, what is the fashion of the time versus what is essential orthodox doctrine. Oh, certainly, certainly. I mean, say a little bit more about that, because I think that's a, a good argument to flesh out a bit. Well, the, I mean, the geocentrism thing's a great example, because that, that's come down in history as something something that the medieval church believed was biblically grounded. And as you point out, it, it's actually not. They, I mean, there, there are references to the sun going up and down in the Bible, and I'm, I'm certain I'm certain that, that, that people... Uh, People in biblical times believed that the sun revolved around the earth because, you know, empirically that's what happens. Uh, uh-huh. Just just looking without without better knowledge of astrophysics. I guess it depends on your definition of empiricism. Uh-huh. Um, but it, it, the, like you said, the reason the reason they fought so hard for it is because they had they had constructed an entire system of theology based on Aristotle, and and that system of theology became confused with the truth of the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it happens to all of us because all of our systematic theologies are partially biblical theologies and partially whatever philosophy we're bringing to create our systematic theologies. Right. Although as long as you stay away from, you know, the uh, Greco-Roman worldview, right. I think you're all right. Well, There's only you, one of them after you're, all. You're going to bring in, you know, some other worldview, <laughs> the pantheist or the existentialist or whatever. Uh, sure, sure. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so, so you, I'm not saying it's impossible to tell the difference between those two things, but because we're fallible human beings and vain human beings, and then uh, fallible vain human beings who have been given an enormous amount of power, mm-hmm. you know, the people who who are censoring, uh, I, I would think you would have to search your soul pretty long and hard before you censored a book. But I, uh, I am, you know, not a particularly censorious person, so maybe that's just my own bias. Right. And see, I'm, I'm going to see your bet and raise you one. I would say that the core Christian doctrines are themselves embedded in cultural idioms to the extent that trying to say we're going to separate the pure, pure Christian stuff from the cultural stuff is always a fool's errand. Yeah, and one of these days we'll get around to doing an episode on uh, Niebuhr's Christ and Culture, I'm sure. <laughs> and, and, and we can have that argument, although I'm never quite sure where I fall on that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty well convinced that, you know, I mean, when you're dealing with a guy who was an Aramaic-speaking Jew who heard Hebrew read in the synagogue in a Greek-speaking region of Roman-occupied Palestine, you're not going to get a whole lot of pure unhistorically inflected doctrines out of him. No, that's true. But I would, I would, I would, <laughs> I would like to think, I would like to think that the central doctrines of the Christian faith are transcultural. Oh, I think they travel well, if that's what you mean. Maybe I'm, maybe I believe in magic more than you do. <laughs> I, I, I won't dispute that, Michael. Well, uh, you were the University of Georgia's one-man Church of Milton back in the day. That was that was what that was actually your nickname. Yes, I'm, I'm yes. not sure our listeners know that. Um, <laughs> so I figure I need to have you talk about Milton's anti-censorship treatise, Areopagitica. Am I pronouncing that right? That's how I always say it. In the midst of his argument for freedom of the press, and, and feel free to talk as much about what that argument consists of, but I'm interested in particular in the part where he recommends banning a couple of types of books and tracts. How does he justify that censorship? And I guess if you're interested in talking about it, what's his overall argument for freedom of the press? Sure. Well, first of all, to talk about the material conditions again, uh, England in the 17th century uh, doesn't have a you know an index liborum like the Catholic Church does, but it does have an agency of the crown called the registry. And this is an agency that controls, again, what goes to press and what does not. So Milton's large argument in Areopagitica is to loosen up pretty radically the things that they will print in England. His basic argument for it is that ideas only have power insofar as they remain uncontested. So if you keep a book out of the public hands and someone discovers a copy, you know, underground by whatever means, 
what you end up with is people who are convinced that this idea must be powerful because somebody doesn't want me to get to it. Mm-hmm. And for Milton, what that means is odds are it's a substandard idea, but because it's not out in the open being challenged, it ends up getting a power disproportionate to its actual merit. And he says that this is the way, honestly, that a lot of heresies get started uh, because people hide them behind shrouds of secrecy and make sure that no one can see them. And as a result, you know, what ends up happening is that, you know, you get these groups of people who, with a little bit of rational argument and some time to be convinced, would probably come away from the stupid ideas and towards the better ideas, but they never end up doing so because there are all these hindrances to the free exchange of ideas going on there. Now, what's interesting about this is that, um, and Stanley Fish was the one famously who built an entire philosophy of First Amendment interpretation around this passage, is that Milton says that there are certain books of the papists, uh, of the Roman Catholics, that still shouldn't go to press in England, largely because they encourage people to submit to an external authority, not to the rational deliberation that characterizes the exchange of ideas. So in Stanley Fish's words, uh, what Milton wants to prohibit is ideas that prohibit the exchange of ideas. And he says that ultimately that is what the sort of First Amendment absolutists of the late 20th century, because that's when he's writing this book, miss when they talk about censorship cases, is that if, if freedom of expression doesn't exist for the sake of some good beyond itself, it becomes a self-destructive ideology because you end up supporting the ideas of an Ayatollah Khomeini or someone like that who ultimately will restrict the free, the free exchange of ideas. So ultimately, you know, the, some sort of idea of Republican virtue has to supersede and it has to, it has to be the ultimate term rather than free expression itself. Um, so that's ultimately, you know, Stan Fish's interpretation of that. You might wonder why I didn't go straight to Milton's uh, justification for it, and the answer is that Fish has infected my mind so thoroughly that when I read Milton, I hear Stan Fish's voice. <laughs> so, Michael, I mean, is there anything you would add, I mean, to the Milton discussion here? Who decides that Republican virtue is the the talos of free speech? Uh, well, I mean, for Stan Fish, I mean, the people who decide that are the citizens of that republic. So in other words, you know, he says that there is a logically valid argument for saying that we have to restrict speech which will materially destroy who we are if who we are is people who value the exchange of ideas. And he admits right up front that it's a contradiction. And, you know, I mean, although he famously says there's not a Marxist bone in his body, he does make a lot of hay out of that historical contradiction. I'm just, I'm, I'm very interested. I mean, fr- freedom of speech is a, is a big deal right now because of Charlie Hebdo and a couple of oh, other certainly, things, certainly. right? I, I'm just interested in who gets to make the decision of what, what freedom of speech is going to violate our, our own principles. Well, I mean, the Foucaultian answer to that, of course, is that, you know, the, the power system makes that determination. Uh, that it's not, you know, any sort of conspiracy of people sitting around in a room deciding what's going to be the ultimate term, but it sort of arises out of the form of life of any given society. Foucault believes in magic, too. Yeah. <laughs> and, and honestly, I'm more convinced by his magic than yours. So. <laughs> I, I, I'm, a, I, I'm less worried about some sort of backroom cigar-smoking conspiracy theory than I am about just turning it over to the masses, as will surprise no one. Uh-huh. Uh, well, and, 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 I mean, to be fair, and, I mean, you, you jumped on a phrase that I, I used uh, carelessly there. It's not a strictly democratic thing. I mean, I, it's a historically complex reality. In other words, there are elites that are involved with it, but they don't have unilateral control over it. Right. But you're right to correct me on that because I, I did uh, I didn't phrase that very well. I'm just I'm not sure that Republican virtue is a possible thing in a in a broadly democratic society. And I, I hope our uh, I hope our listeners know I'm not I'm not talking about American political parties at all. Oh, certainly, certainly, yeah. I mean, I, I had the Roman Republic in mind, but in a, in a pluralistic society, let's say. 
in a, in a society with that many viewpoints about what constitutes the good, how can you make any argument for censorship whatsoever? I understand in a small community, right? I understand. Uh-huh. I understand in a college, you can say, "Oh, well, we're we're censoring these things because most of us agree that this is this is not a, a beneficial way to live." But what do you do in a society of I don't even know how many people live in America? Three hundred million. Yeah, let's make that a rough number. Where, where there's, let's say, 50 million distinct conceptions of, of what constitutes the good. <laughs> yes, folks, every six people has a distinct philosophy, apparently. Well, the world views. <laughs> I, I don't know. However many, 500,000. I mean, uh-huh. even if there's 15, you, you know, that, that, that's going to be something that's going to be difficult to choose from among, isn't it? Uh, it is, and I mean, this is why Stanfish, I mean, emphasizes that there's never a set moment of legislature in the process in a liberal republic, but rather it's an ongoing deliberation. So, I mean, it, it's one of those things where, I mean, if you if you keep pushing on Stanfish looking for the Archimedean point, you're not going to find it. I, I think I'm more practical than Stanfish. I don't know what happened to me. Because <laughs> this is a practical question, right? I mean, uh-huh. I, I, I appreciate what he's saying, but I, I just don't—I don't see how you could actually run a society, run a pluralistic society that way. Okay. Well, I, let me ask you this, just just as a test case. I mean, what do you think of the prohibition in Germany of Holocaust deniers publishing their works? Completely understand why they do it. Okay, and and that's going to be a special case, right? Because because that okay, is okay. Well, special case is precisely what fish is about. But keep rolling, because I mean that is a I won't say unrepeatable, but but unusual situation, uh-huh. and, and of relatively recent vintage, right? And and one that threatens to define the national character of that country negatively forever. Okay, so I understand why they do it, and I. I you know, I'm not German, so I, I don't really, I, I don't feel like I have a right to say, well, I wouldn't do it because I, do, I don't know what it's like to have that event on, on my national conscience. Uh-huh. But I, I would say the, the, the situations in which that's a coherent ethical stance seem to uh-huh. me to be, to be few. Uh-huh. All right. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. Let me ask you this, and, you know, again, that this is a, a closer to home, but also, I mean, even as I try to think up the counterfactual, a little bit less, you know, a um, little bit less plausible. Uh, but, you know, I mean, and honestly, I mean, even as I think about it, you know, my answer is that whoever published it would probably get death threats and get assassinated, and there would be no Charlie Hebdo marches to protect them. But, you know, what if someone started publishing a periodical, you know, advocating for the reinstatement of black slavery in the American South. And, you know, I I mean, as soon as I say that, I realize, I mean, someone's going to get him. (laughs) And and like I said, there's not going to be people marching in the streets saying, Je suis Billy Bob. Je suis, huh? (laughs) I guess they would say that, Je suis Billy Bob. Hey, Laura Portelli Fono, poor favor. Um, Yeah, I I, I think... I, I and, and see now I've gone from distrusting the masses to trusting them completely because I think the marketplace of <laughs> I think the marketplace of ideas would take care of that. Right, right, and you know that's again maybe something that's not on the intellectual horizon that Milton could conjure. Yeah, let me say this real quick and then press away. Part of that I think is that you still have a very centralized means of production of of printed material in the 17th century. Whereas now, I mean, I I don't know if you were this sort of high schooler, Michael, I was, I mean, we had a little underground newspaper, even in the days before web browsers. I bet you did. We Xeroxed and stapled and, you know, put in bathroom stalls and jazz like that. So, I mean, you know, the mode of production was so decentralized that even a bunch of idiot 16 and 17 year olds could produce an underground paper. Anyway, go ahead. Ask your question. Are are you in favor of like denying the KKK their ability to hold rallies? Oh goodness! Now this hits close to home because I'm from the Indianapolis area. And now you live KKK close to Gwinnett County, Georgia, where, where they, they oh, restarted. Oh, I, I didn't know about that. I mean, honestly, I I saw and still see 
a lot more um, just overt racism in the Midwest than I ever did in the South. So that that's one of the things that, you know, strikes close for me. I mean, one of the things that I mean, I, I still remember this like it was yesterday. I mean, one of the Klan rallies, and yes, listeners, I did say one of the Klan rallies in downtown Indianapolis that I remember from the 1990s, uh, an Indianapolis star photographer captured this guy, you know, with his Fostica tattoos and everything else, you know, holding up a sign with racial epithets, blurred out for the newspaper photo. And it was a four-panel series of photos. The first one had him holding up the plat, the sign. The second one had a large black man approaching him. The third one had the large black man throwing him to the ground. And the fourth, the large black man pounding the heck out of him. Nice. <laughs> and this was on the front page of the Indy Star. And I mean, you know, it, you, you don't have to be a uh, Dante reader to see the contrapasso here. <laughs> you on, know. on the other hand, doesn't it just prove the KKK's point? Uh, if, if you're in the KKK, I'm sorry, that doesn't actually prove that point to me. But isn't the, isn't the guy laying bleeding on the ground just going to say, I told you? Right, or he's going to say, Je suis Billy Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Jay Suis. <laughs> yeah, Jay Suis, Billy Bob. Uh, yeah, I mean, so it's one of those things where, I mean, my inclination to say is to say, well, no, let's get the stupid out in the open so we can all see the stupid, and that way we can all call it stupid, and then people will be less inclined to call it stupid. So, I mean, I, I probably tend more towards a the broader sweep of Milton's Areopagitica than I do to that famous paragraph towards the end of it. And I mean, I, I guess uh, black slavery is kind of our Holocaust in terms of its effect on, I wouldn't say kind of, I'd say it is, and, it should be. <laughs> but nobody denies it took place. So it's not like, so, so, so the KKK is not the same thing as Holocaust denial. I'm not saying it's not right. just as bad, oh, but it's those, not the same. Those thing. sorts of folks do tend to, distort its moral character yeah that's true they'll say you know they they actually had it better than you know blacks in detroit do now except they weren't free except for that part (laughs) well and that they could have their spouses and children bought and sold and also that they could be beaten without any legal recourse and also a whole daggum long list of reasons why that's a stupid assertion yeah it's it's really dumb (laughs) it's really really dumb (laughs) <laughs> oh, you know, well, many, many slave owners were very kind. Uh, yeah, except the part where they own you. Yeah. Except for that part. <laughs> oh, heavens. So I hope and, and, and listeners, if you can't tell, I've had a number of these conversations. <laughs> I, I, so, I mean, I, I don't want anybody to, to walk away from this thinking I'm defending the KKK, but I, 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 I think there's you have to draw the line somewhere and i know we're going to talk about the the proper uses of censorship in a bit so maybe i should just yeah. off on it until then well i mean to go back to the charlie hebdo conversation you and i had michael i mean this is where i draw a distinction between those who are protected by free speech and then free speech itself as a civic good i am a defender of free speech i think that government shouldn't prohibit things being published i think that people who kill people for publishing things should be prosecuted more harshly than those who kill people because their spouse has cheated on them, all right, because I think it is a form of terrorism, okay? On the other hand, that doesn't mean that I'm going to say that everyone who publishes something protected by free speech is therefore good, right? right. In other words, you know, I am an advocate of free speech in spite of Larry Flint and Charlie Hebdo, not because of them. Well, the the other thing is, the the First Amendment is is so frequently in, invoked in popular conversation in this country as though it meant you're I not can allowed s- to agree with me, <laughs> right? I, I can say whatever I want, and there are no consequences to it. No, it just means the government won't stop you yes. from saying it. Right, right. It doesn't mean that your employer can't stop you from saying it. It doesn't mean that people can't want to break your teeth when you say it. It just means the federal government can't stop you from saying it. Or to quote Pope Francis, you know, if you insult my mother, you should expect a punch. (laughs) And and I believe it because he was a bodyguard. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, you know, I mean, that's that. and, And again, I mean, to bring that, you know, back to an American setting, you know, if someone insists based on First Amendment grounds that, they should be able to go, you know, into East Indianapolis or, you know, the the outskirts of Atlanta and utter racial epithets at full voice. Um, I will say, yes, that is protected by First Amendment. 
And, you know, if someone beats the heck out of you, then, yes, you had it coming because you're a moron. Right, right. But the government should probably still prosecute the person who beat the heck out of you for assault. And I don't like that, but ultimately I think it's a civic good. Yeah. Well, otherwise you get anarchy, right? Well, or you get, I mean, something more like a totalitarian state where there is no room for novel ideas. I mean, unfortunately, I mean, you know, human history, I think, has demonstrated that if you try to censor all ideas, you end up with collateral damage intellectually. Right. Well, we're doing this episode because the day it publishes will be the 132nd anniversary of the United States Comstock laws, probably the most important censorship laws in this country. Uh, Nathan, what sort of things did Comstock ban and what social effects has that ban had, especially for us English professor types? Well, first of all, this is another law. Uh, you might think of censorship as something especially medieval. Get that idea out of your head, folks. Uh, censorship is a modern phenomenon, or at least censorship as we know it. Uh, this is an 1873 law uh, passed in response to the proliferation of obscene and otherwise pornographic materials and also the proliferation of easily available, affordable contraception. Uh, this is a law that uh, bans the distribution of either of those kinds of items. Uh, and Michael, honestly, I, I I just now realized as I started talking, uh, I don't know what the fate of the law was, if it, if it is still on the books but no one enforces it or if the Supreme Court struck it down or if something else happened to it. Uh, but the Comstock laws basically said that, you know, within the United States, this was a federal law, uh, Merchants and postal service and other relevant agencies could not distribute those kinds of materials. So, again, it's a question of means of production, right? It wasn't something to where if you wrote something down in your private notebook, there would be stormtroopers coming into your house to seize that notebook. But it did mean that you could not uh, profit financially from the sale of those sorts of things or the transportation of the same. Uh, Michael, I don't hear keys clacking anymore. What do you got? <laughs> yeah, I was looking it up. Um, I, the, the thing I found is that the contraception parts of the, the Comstock laws have been officially struck down. Okay. Probably in a federal court. Yeah. Uh, well, no. Uh, state state court? Uh, probably they went to the Supreme Court. Right, right. Um, I can't find anything about whether the the – the obscene uh, reading material has been struck down. Part of the part of the issue here is that obscenity is notoriously difficult to define, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas contraception is easy to define, relatively yeah. relatively easy to right. define. Although the recent Hobby Lobby case shows that there's still some room for dispute. Yeah. So I, I um, you know, who might know this is Co- uh, our listener Coyle Neal. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I, he, you know, he's a he and Alexis, his wife, are political law people, so um, maybe they can maybe they can let us know. But I, it, my impression is that the the contraception parts are no longer there, but mm-hmm. the uh, the uh, the obscene literature may still be there. Right, right. Now, like I said earlier, I mean the reason that the Comstock laws affect us English professor types, to use Michael's phrase. Uh, is that when you try to ban a class of things, there tends to be collateral damage. So uh, what ends up happening is that a novel, if it has scenes that someone judges to be obscene or lascivious, ends up falling under the purview of this law as interpreted by this or that judge. Uh, And so it's one of those things, again, where you have to ask the question, uh, you know, what ultimately is better to allow for the open exchange of these things, knowing that there is, you know, a class of literature now that honestly didn't exist as we know it now in the 17th century when John Milton was writing. Ish. What now? The Satyricon was a thing, and, and, and in a world where yeah, the Satyricon was a thing. Yeah, but it had just been invented, though. That's my no, no, point. No, no, the Satyricon is ancient Rome. Okay. All right. All right. No, no, there, there have there have been dirty novels since. I mean, literally since there have been novels. If you count right. the satirical. Well, what I'm talking about is an entire publishing industry dedicated to titillation. Okay. Well, that's true. So I mean, I, I and yeah, again, I'm, I, I was careless there with my phrasing, but you know, an industry had arisen by the 1870s that simply hadn't existed before. This law was a response to it. 
but again, there was collateral damage. So, and and this honestly, Michael, I mean, I, I this is where I actually get conflicted about censorship because you know one of the things that you know our listeners uh, should know if they don't know is that, for instance, you can still be prosecuted for producing, possessing, distributing, or otherwise coming in contact with child pornography, right? Right. So, I mean, that is a blatant, you know, and unapologetic censorship, and honestly, I'm all for it. On the other hand, I mean, the Comstock laws very famously banned books by D.H. Lawrence and James Joyce and Oh, sure, sure. Freud for being, for being obscene, which... You know, I, have you read Lady Chatterley's Lover, the, the famous no, band? I have not. No, it, I haven't. It's pretty terrible. I mean, I've, I've, I'm a Updike scholar. I've read my share of uh, obscene novels, mm-hmm. and, and you know, well, sure. I mean, I've only read a few Updike novels, and I mean, the sex scenes are very uncomfortable. Right. One, well, and there was some talk that Rabbit Run was going to get him prosecuted for obscenity, uh-huh. which is my favorite Updike story ever because his lawyer called him and said. Uh, you know, you need to come down and meet with me this week to see to talk about what's going to happen if you get prosecuted for obscenity. And I said, oh, I can't do it. I'm teaching vacation Bible school this week. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but so, I mean, in addition to things like child pornography and just, you know, actual pictures of, of naked women and the, and the, and the like, you're, you're getting, I mean, Ulysses was banned under the Comstock laws. Oh, sure, sure. And what I'm saying is that this is not a simple case by any means. Right. Right, but there are things you know. that there are things that are obscene and should not be distributed. Well, and I mean, and and here's where I mean, actually giving a giving a more philosophically robust account of what different things are can be helpful, right? Because I mean, the actual act of producing child pornography actually exploits the body of a child, right? Whereas for Joyce to write Ulysses, uh, you know, no children were harmed in the writing of that novel that I know of. I mean, the real problem with obscenity, I mean, there's a very famous definition from Potter Stewart, right, about uh obscenity. I know it when I see it. Yes. uh, Which is not a good definition. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because because I'm not you. Well, but it's an honest one because it points to the fact that as soon as you define it, first of all, there's going to be collateral damage, and second of all, people are going to be able to slide around the the terms of the definition when they produce their next batch of porn. Right. So, I mean, I, I agree with you that if we're talking about is it a good definition, well, no, of course not. That's not what a definition does. But I think it does nod to the truth that in the postmodern period, uh, definitions are made to be skirted. Bummer. <laughs> well, as a society, we seem to have swung back in the other direction the last few decades. It, it, is, it is weird to think of anybody being prosecuted for obscenity other than child pornography. Mm-hmm. Um, and the internet in particular tends to get talked about as this place of absolutely free speech and, and attempts to censor content on the internet or in meat space, as the young people say, are often met Did with... Do the young a, people say that? No, no. But generally when I say <laughs> the young people say, it's usually something they stopped saying before I was born. Uh, attempts to censor content are often met with anger and quotations of the First Amendment and things like that. Let's end this episode with the the conversation we've kind of been butting up against the whole time, Mm -hmm. which is, is there a place for censorship in the 21st century? I I would say no, there is not a place for censorship because the word censorship encourages us us to think about a singular class of phenomena that we can define. And it's one of those things where, you know, to go back to one of Michael's examples, I would say keep Ulysses on the shelf. Uh, But on the other hand, I think that our legal language and our philosophical language and our ethical language uh, really has to be complex enough to distinguish between, again, artifacts that do material harm to the existence of human beings and then artifacts that, you know, in their production at least, don't do that harm. Now, on the consumption end, I tend to be a lot more of a free speech advocate simply because, again, I tend to be a Miltonist about this. And, you know, the best way to counter bad ideas is to expose them to good ideas. Now, the thing about pornography is that it doesn't really work in that paradigm as far as it's I can tell. It's not an idea, is it? Well, precisely, precisely. I mean, it is something that, you know, um, honestly, you know, George Orwell warned us about in 1984, right? I mean, there are certain phenomena 
that affect the soul, but not by means of persuasion. Um, and, you know, Aldous Huxley in Brave New World, just in case we've got any Neil Postman readers out there. I got that in there, right? Um, but it's one of those things where I think that the, the question is still complex. And, I mean, this is why when I think about acts of censorship in the plural, I tend to think about it in terms of, you know, that – well, I mean, let's go back to the, the medieval Catholics, shall we? That medieval notion of subsidiarity where – if you try to censor things at too broad a scope, or if you try to prevent censorship at too broad a scope, you're going to have collateral damage and also things are going to get missed. I think that this is one of those things that is best handled locally and by communities that are small enough, like Michael nodded to earlier, that they can have something resembling a common moral sense. Uh, spoken like a true porcher. <laughs> but how can you censor things locally when the internet exists? Uh, the answer is to make them part of the ethical expectations of being part of that local community. And part of that is to exist in a local community robust enough for that to be intelligible. And I mean, you and I teaching at Christian colleges know how difficult that is. And, you know, I, I, I guess I'm going to, you know, fall back to a, a theme that I often invoke when we have these conversations. It doesn't make it easier, but I do think that asking those questions rather than the national censorship questions is going to get you towards a better form of life than starting with the national and working your way down. Well, that's probably true. But surely you believe there are things that should be banned nationally. I mean, almost... Well, and again, I, I think that's the case, but I don't think it's because of Comstock sorts of reasons. I mean, so for instance, you know, to go to the the outlier case of child pornography, the production of those artifacts does material harm to a human body, right? Um, whether in terms of, you know, actual bruises and breaks or in terms of the exposure of that person's body as a consumer good to a buying public. So that's one of those cases where the actual production of the artifact does harm. Therefore, I mean, I wouldn't argue for the restriction of that or the prosecution of those who pro who produce it in terms of, you know, if someone looks at it, it's going to give them dirty thoughts, but that the actual production harms the child. Does that make some sense? It does. But I mean, at, at that, at that point, I mean, using that argument, that is essentially, I mean, I guess there's, there's a few other types of pornography you could ban, but uh huh. The question I always ask for uh, anti-censorship people, and, and I, you know, I, I really don't know how I feel about all this, is, is <laughs> do you think ABC should be allowed to show hardcore pornography at 8 o'clock? Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, should they be allowed to? Yeah, well, I mean, we have a regulatory body, right? We have the SEC. Oh, I know, FCC, the FCC, yeah. Uh -huh. Which, uh, you know, is a ridiculous organization that... <laughs> It does a lot of stupid things, but they do right, keep right. It, pornography it's kind of a chief of example of what I'm talking about is, you know, hitting all the wrong things. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, and and honestly, part of my answer to that is that there's so few people who watch ABC at 8 o'clock at night anymore <laughs> that it's becoming less and less of a question, so it might just go away eventually. Right. Uh, but if I were to attempt a principled answer to that, I probably would on principle say that, you know, I would leave that to local affiliates rather than make it a national thing. And then what would happen, I have a hunch, is that you would have a just mass flight from it, except for people who would already be consuming that sort of thing anyway, that they would lose all of their advertising revenue and they would cease to exist as ABC. The same argument I made for the KKK, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, ultimately, I mean, I don't disagree with you radically uh, once you get boots on the ground, it's just a matter of what questions I ask to get there. That's what I'm concerned with. Well, it is certainly not an easy issue, is it? No. <laughs> well, if uh, if you feel like we've gotten something terribly wrong, um, please send us an email at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Our website is christianhumanist.org. Uh, David Grubbs, I hope, will be leading next week's episode, but he's not here to tell us what he's doing, so it'll be a surprise for you guys as much as it is for us. Although you could drop in the sigh and the I haven't the foggiest idea clip. Uh, that that uh, that is two computers ago, Nathan. I don't have oh, that. I don't have man, that clip that's too anymore. Because that, that's an audio gem right there. I know. 
I know. In the meantime, uh, as I said, you can visit our website at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Humanist is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our intern is Zach Schmidt. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. For Nathan Gilmore and the absent David Grubbs, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. Still the same, Zach.